from WBOI Fort Wayne. From WBOI Studios in Fort Wayne, this is the I Am Immigrant, and I am Ahmed Abdelmajid. I am a Palestinian immigrant who has been donning the title of immigrant for the past 24 years of my life. I am interested in conversations around the immigrant experience, conversation that we seem to be not having or we seem to be not knowing how to have. For this podcast series, I'm hoping that we have conversations with different immigrants about all that it entails to be an immigrant. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of The Iron Immigrant. I am your host, Ahmed Abdelmajid, and as always, I am joined by Katie Anderson. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing well and very excited about today's interview. It's actually a country I know very little about, so I'm eager to learn more. That's fantastic. Well, we know a little about the country, but we know a lot about the man. Mm-hmm. Elton Skindaj, he is uh, a former colleague, a friend, and someone who's actually a friend of the station. He's uh, He's been on a few episodes of different shows presenting a lot of important content and, and commentary. And we'll get to that throughout our episode. Um, but Elton, welcome to the Iron Immigrant. Thank you. Yes. Hi, um, I'm Elton Skandai. And this is, I always enjoy participating in such WBOI interviews. And I followed your podcast, Ahmed and Katie. So it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to join you. And Elton, uh, we're going to start off the episode with the typical question that we get asked once people pick up on our accent, which is, where are you from? So I I was born in Albania, which is this small, tiny country north of Greece, east of Italy. And my hometown, Vlora, is actually about 2,500 years old. It used to be a Greek colony and then a Roman town and then a Byzantine town and now an Albanian, one of the biggest Albanian seaside towns. So I, I grew up mostly by the Mediterranean Sea. Very nice. And how big is Albania? Can you tell us a little bit about the country, size, demographic? So the the country's population is less than 3 million people. Okay. One interesting thing about the people is that one, a large proportion of it is immigrants. One out of four Albanians live abroad. Huh. Uh, oh, live abroad, them... not, not one out of four who live in Albania came from somewhere else. No, no, yeah, no. They, they, uh, they. Uh, so one out of four Albanians have left Albania to live abroad, usually in Greece, Italy. But there are about a hundred thousand in the United States, and of course there is ethnic Albanians living in neighboring Kosovo and northern Macedonia. So there's about ten million Alba- Albanian speakers. And what what distinguishes Albanian is not like, you know, in terms of their, the way the, the nation is constructed is not religion, but it's it's language. So Albanian families can have Orthodox, Christian, Catholic and Muslims uh, and a lot, of course, you know, many secular, many are secular now. But there's a wide range of religious beliefs in the country. Mm. Uh, and so, because it was communist, when I was born in 1977, it was a communist country. It had declared itself an atheist country officially. So it banned religious uh, belief. So for many years, then it was uh, people could not actually go to mosques or churches. Oh, so um, not, not a secular country, a completely no religious practice. Yeah, or... it's not. They didn't allow the 
They followed the Marxist idea that religion is the opium of the people. Why give people opium? I'm just being ironic here. And uh, so they just banned it altogether. So it was an extreme version of authoritarianism. And all religions, not just the minority, all religions were banned. All religions were banned. Hmm. For For how long a period was that? Until 1991. Wow. Okay. When uh, communism ended. Yeah. So all religions were banned. Before that, Albania was about 70% Muslim country, mostly Sunni. But there is, again, with there's such Albanian syncretism. So there is, we, we also had a big minority of uh, Shia and Bektashi sect. Mm-hmm. Actually, the, the world center for the Bektashi uh, Muslim faith was in Albania. When communism came to power in 1944, they moved to Detroit, Michigan. Uh-huh. So, so there was a lot of plural, like religious pluralism in the country. Part in, and that also made the Albanian nationalism kind of rise up later. Because, for example, to be Greek, you had to speak the Greek language and be an Orthodox Christian. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, to be to be Croatian meant to be to speak Serbo-Croatian and be Catholic. To be a Serb means to speak uh, Serbian, Serbo-Croatian, and be Orthodox. Albanians, Albania is a, one of the most, was formally found in 1912, partly because, you know, we actually profess different different religions, and many actually, because they were very much integrated in the Ottoman Empire, they were multilingual. They were mm. able to uh, to cross a lot of cultural boundaries. Well, it seems and the think, geographic location of it allowed for for that you're saying it was pluralistic in religious identity there are many different religious religions and and different languages but you also mentioned earlier that the distinguishing factor or maybe the common thread is the albanian language what makes an albanian an albanian is the albanian language so could you shed a little light on the albanian language um you know, how is it different or distinct or where is it? What's its roots? Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, my father is a linguist. So, I mean, I grew okay. up with uh, language trees, etc. So Albanian itself is an Indo-European language. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, it's it's unique within the Indo- Indo-European family lang- of languages because it's not directly related to other families. So it's kind of it's got its own branch and the closest, the closest relative in terms of Asian language is Illyrian, which was spoken in the Balkan Peninsula prior to the Roman conquest and the kind of you know the, the Roman Empire ruling that area. So we're not. I mean, we many of us understand Romance language. I speak Italian because I grew up 50 mm-hmm. miles away from Italy. But it's Albanian is not a Romance language or it's not Germanic or Slavic, right? So that makes it slightly different from a lot of our neighbors. Because if you go north, for example, if you understand Bulgarian, mm-hmm. you can really understand North Macedonian. If you go across from Montenegro to Serbia to Croatia to Bosnia, they all speak variation of a language that used to be called Serbo-Croatian. But now that they are new countries, they all call it different languages. But they can get by, like they can maybe manage to understand each other. Oh, yes. Oh, but yes. if you speak oh, yes. Albanian and you go to Serbia or Croatia or Italy, it's a totally no, it, different language is what you're saying. Yes. So that, that has meant that we all had to kind of, we never expect as immigrants, we never expect that other people will know our language. So we have, always have to learn the languages of 
So, you know, I don't expect others to kind of speak my language. So I make an extra effort to learn the language. So when I travel there, etc., I know how to speak it or I know how to learn about some of the customs of the land, etc. Mm-hmm. So and I think that's that that has been if, if you look at it historically, that has been a way for kind of the Albanians and, and that region to to survive, it just kind of to to adapt, to connect to different groups, etc. So you you mentioned you speak Italian and obviously you speak English very well. Is that something that's in public education that you learned, or is that something that individually you you pursue? Uh, so in public education, you you learn one usually one foreign language starting at fifth grade, but many people either take private lessons in other languages. Do you pick the foreign language, or is it? English yeah, or? yeah. Or as for my case, I just watched Italian TV when I was younger. Albanian TV under communism under communism was very boring. It's just <laughs> like you know they had a, a news item that just glorified the communist party. It was very predictable. So we always listened to Italian TV. And my first exposure to American media, movies, and culture was actually through Italian because Italians dub ev- dub everything. They don't okay. like to have subtitles, which means that they have many of them have difficulties speaking other languages. But this was great for for me and a lot of Albanians because we learned we were curious to learn about the world. And mm-hmm. since they dubbed all American, English, German movies and etc., we were by learning Italian, we were able to access all that cultural. So, uh, so where did learning the English language come in for you? So it was, I actually started in the fifth grade, but then I was curious and I, I wanted to learn uh, more mm-hmm. uh, in many ways for when communism ended, it was it was a traumatic experience, partly because the, the country and the people had been traumatized on a very strict authoritarian kind of regime, which, again, it did not just ban religions. It also had anyone who criticized the government be sent to prison or sent to uh, labor camps. So it was it was a very harsh regime. So people, in order to survive, they tried to kind of focus on their private sphere. So in the private sphere, mm. I mean, families still took vacations, tried to live their life as normally as they could. I remember spending my childhood just playing soccer with my friends, etc. Only later, my parents told me that they could not say anything political on the dinner table because they were worried that if any of us, we were three kids, I was the oldest. Mm-hmm. If any of us would then later talk to our friends when we we're playing soccer and mention, I don't know, it's just like the tomatoes were not that great. Now that would be understood as a criticism, not simply of the tomatoes, but of the Go economy ahead. and the party because it was a planned economy. The government ran the economy. So, and since almost one out of three adults were were spies for the security services, wow. any word could really create issues. Mm-hmm. So kind of my, my, my parents were both teachers, would, would lose their job mm-hmm. and then send, be sent to uh, the village to kind of work the land, which they didn't know as much. I mean, they're, you know, so, <laughs> so that, so there was a lot of pressure to just contain everything. But when I was little, I didn't understand as much because we were just focusing on doing well at school. And just that when communism ended, then we understood the scale of the terror and the lies. Mm -hmm. I mean, we were told we were a lightning house in the world, the communist beacon, you know, 
I, I can't help myself. Whenever I hear in the U.S., it's like, we're the greatest, we're the best, etc. <laughs> I can't help but chuckle because, I mean, we were, we were a small, tiny country and we told this to ourselves all the time. And then kind of when communism ended, we found we were the, the poorest in Europe. Uh, so that was kind of shocking and also in many ways very embarrassing. Mm. Uh, I just remember kind of meeting Europeans would come or Americans would come on and visit and being embarrassed that relative wealth that they had and our relative poverty, like in terms of like our clothes were all clothes that were made in several communist plants. They all looked the same. They were kind of this drab kind of brown colored. I mean, it was just nothing, nothing mm -hmm. to speak about. And you'd meet college kids from elsewhere and they would be wearing brand, brand names and we didn't know the brand names. Wow. Wow. So you grew up, I mean, 14 years of the first 14 years of your life were under communist rule. How so? And, and it seems like the um, when it ended, then you started realizing the issues that, that you've I don't know how to phrase the question. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that 14 years old, you're starting to develop your personality more, you're becoming your own man and having your thoughts and in and and viewpoints developing and there was this major huge transition from communism to a supposedly free society or a society that's about to become uh, more free i mean i liken it it's not to the same scale but for me growing up under so an authoritarian also uh, regime and i was a resident of the country not even a citizen very similar of um, we don't talk politics because you don't know who's around you that might be an informant and you're a resident the you know the next day they can deport you and and living under that sense of oppression of, of freedom of you know expression and all that but not to the level of communism that that you've lived with uh, so I'm, I'm interested in in those couple of formative years for you what, what did you realize about yourself other than the differences you know between albania and different countries and wealth and all that what was the most eye-opening for you yeah, I think I, it was a very strange period because when you are a teenager, you want to rebel against structures, but suddenly the structures disappear. Because yeah. it's not like communism ended and now we are in a free liberal democracy with working market economy. No, actually we went to a post-communist regime where there was a lot of corruption. Mm. Uh, a lot of people became wealthy overnight and others, I mean, and the welfare net was kind of disappeared. But there the was... What I was fascinated is I was just, and it was not just me. I think most Albanians were very curious about the outside. Even right now, you see a lot of surveys that show how people want to learn languages. They're very curious and they want to, you know, uh, you're not likely to find xenophobes in the mm -hmm. sense like, you know, people are actually like to be more like, they, they look up to the Europeans and to the Americans. So there was a lot of curiosity so I finally could read books that I could, I mean, hmm. um, I think I just remembered the, the only books that I could read that were not banned by government censors were either kind of Russian classics. We all read a lot of Russian <laughs> literature, et cetera. Yeah. And it, it's great literature. I mean, it's, you know, uh, et cetera. But in terms of American literature, I just remember reading Jack London and Ernest Hemingway, because mm. in their writings, they had criticized particular aspects of American, either American capitalism or American way of life. So those were not banned. So anyway, so what what was great for me was just kind of first, it's almost like, you you know, 
kind of I was partially blind and I could see like I could mm-hmm. you know uh, read more meet people from different parts of the world and then we also had immediately what happened was a lot of Albanians started to flee and that was also partly what precipitated the change Albanians just went many many young Albanians went to the foreign embassies and said I don't want to live in authoritarian regime anymore I want so they became refugees and many mm. of them went to uh, Germany Italy so that's, we all that's had before the fall of communism during the communist yes. so yeah. it, is that contributed to the that large large percentage of the population being an immigrant is yes. a lot of them fleeing the yeah Yes, but but that continued though over time because people then felt that you know there was not a lot of opportunities, so they would, they would go. There would be seasonal workers in Greece, Italy, so there was a lot of pressure to do that. But many of them actually, even if they had the university degree, were forced to do manual labor because their degrees were, were not recognized. I see. So, um, and I was kind of too young, and I to me it was a time of when finally we could debate. I enjoyed talking, kind of. Um, with other friends and um, at school. I mean, one thing that kind of also reminds me a little bit of actually right now that this polarized time in the U.S. Mm -hmm. was that in early post-communist days in Albania or Soviet, like, like, you know, Russia, etc., it was very hard to talk about politics. It's almost like we lack the vocabulary to just like hear each other. Mm. Because under communism, if you disagreed with me, you're my, you're an enemy, right? So, how can I talk to my enemy? Yeah. It's very, very hard. And and we're seeing elements so, of that in our political discourse nowadays. Well, I, I see, I, I mean, at times, at times, I see kind of, at, there, were, there are times here in highly polarized period where people don't want to talk to others because they're worried that there would be a different political persuasion. And so I was fascinated about having conversations. And I've always been very curious about that. Mm-hmm. So that you can actually reach out and hear what's what's your point of view. It's, and it's so, fascinating that, you know, all of a sudden there's this huge open floodgates that you can talk to anyone, you can talk to, discuss anything almost, you know, for an inquisitive mind, especially at the age of 14, 15, I can imagine that must have felt like a big surge of, <laughs> I want to know everything all at once and, you know, things that you kind of knew about and lots that you didn't know about. And and I'm wondering if that played a role in establishing your curiosity for what you do now. Because and if you could tell us a little bit about what you do now. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. So it it did in many ways. I was curious. I come from a family of teachers, mm-hmm. uh, so I was very very curious about learning all the time. And education was in in some ways my ticket to uh, advancement and, and success. In 1996, I actually went to the first American university in Eastern Europe, an American university in Bulgaria, mm. which was created by as a cooperation between the U.S. government and the Soros foundations in Eastern Europe to actually kind of create more broadly speaking liberal societies, societies that believed in human rights, free markets, and that were open to disagreement. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated with that, and uh, I was uh, I, I worked hard to get a Soros scholarship for that. I was every year uh, you had 20, 20 income students all over Eastern Europe that were giving uh, the Soros scholarship, which was a full ride. So for four wow. years, they covered not just tuition, room and board, but even they even gave us some uh, pocket money. So I used it then to travel. I would kind of go to Greece or Turkey, and then I would uh, 
at that time, what, a lot of universities in Western Europe were holding this essay competitions or kind of uh, entrepreneurship congresses, conferences, etc. So I'll just participate. Mm-hmm. I'll just send my essay. That would guarantee a free ride. I would just go. <laughs> and or there were events. So by my junior year, I was actually traveling every almost every second month. Wow. Uh, and so it was I was pretty young on the conference circuits, but I really enjoyed it because, again, I had missed this kind of being able to talk to people from around the world. So and because of its location. So it was, uh, you know, I quickly learned and reached out to most places in Western Europe, but then also looked into the Mediterranean. So we'd have events in Greece and Cyprus where we would meet a lot of people from uh, many participants from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. That's where I met my first Palestinian friends, for example. Mm-hmm. So it was, in many ways, it was like uh, there were a lot of doors that were open during college. But the first time I came to the U.S. was actually when I was uh, almost 23 years old. I came in year 2000 to start my peace studies program at Notre Dame here in Indiana. I think kind of uh, I, I started to think more about peace and politics, partly because uh, several years during my first year in college, Albania, the home country, actually fell apart. There were riots after pyramid scheme scandal. Mm-hmm. A lot of people lost money in this uh, economic Ponzi schemes. And then things went from protests to violence. Mm. So, and my hometown of Laura was at the epicenter. And so it was very, it's pretty traumatic period for me because I was, on one hand, I was pretty privileged. I was at this American college. I was on a full scholarship. On the other hand, my hometown was every day on CNN and BBC, and I could not reach my family on the phone. Wow. So, um, you know, I, I, I knew that I need to to kind of study it more uh, and learn and learn more of it. But also it made me think that if that continued, I would have essentially might have to switch from being a student to becoming a refugee. Uh, if the situation back home. If the continued. situation continued, I could not come home. <clears throat> you know, due to uh, peacekeeping, the situation got better. So mm-hmm. I didn't, I could not. But I had an early appreciation of living with the uncertainty of not being able to, to go home. And, and I mean, I know Ahmed, your family the, and, and the history of Palestinians is kind of uh, that there is a strong sense of that sense of loss. To me, it was a temporary loss. It was still traumatic, but it made me more curious to learn more about how to prevent such things from happening, You know, how to create societies that have constructive conflict resolution methods. So you have diverse people living with each other. You, I mean... People and populations become become skilled, so you don't go to violence. Mm-hmm. So that's why I came to uh, I came to uh, Notre Dame. So Indiana was uh, the first state I saw in the United States. I, you know, I, I, I was amused in the beginning, partly because almost everyone was smiling. Yeah, Eastern Europeans don't smile <laughs> much. I think it's partly kind of as I said, because of the communist legacy, people are less trusting uh-huh. of people that they don't know. I can understand that. So I would go to um, the store and be like, hi, hon. And the person would smile at me and I'd be like, okay, <laughs> I've been here for two months. What does I she know want I've from not me? met this person, but they're <laughs> smiling. So I'm going to smile back, uh-huh. you know. Uh, so, but it, it, it was fine. I actually, I enjoyed it. When I kind of came back to the US, from the U.S. and went back to Albania, people were noticing that I smiled more. 
it's it's amazing how something that little you know you, we don't pick up on in our day to day until someone from a completely different culture comes in and i same thing here you know when i when i first moved to uh, the Midwest region in the U.S. And it's, I think, typical of the Midwest where people are generally more open, smiling, and, you know, generous, more welcoming. And it was like, wow, you know, <laughs> everybody here seems to be cheerful and happy. Yeah, I mean, so I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I, and I get it. I, I get the Hoosier hospitality idea and kind of welcome. So you uh-huh. came to, to Indiana starting with Notre Dame in 2000, establishing a peace studies program. You know, I came to Indiana and studied at Notre Dame for one year uh, at International Peace Studies. And then I took some of the lessons that uh, I learned here and went back to to my home country of Albania and started an international project working with the United Nations, an international NGO, Hegopil for Peace, to work with high school kids and introduce peace studies curricula, peace education curricula. Mm. This were, you know, using both lessons in school as well as extracurricular arts, sports for peace, etc. Learning to actually work well with others, learning to communicate. Uh, so you're so working with you the youth. Go to violence. You're working with the youth that, you, as you mentioned, while you were at the university, were probably growing up in that period of time in Albania, where, like you said, the economic collapse that led to eventual riots and and uh, violence. So they grew up in a very different the post-communist society, and you were working with them on better paths to peace and conflict resolution. Yes. So like skills and uh, learning learning from lessons from other countries or learning from indigenous lessons about how Albanians in the past actually would resolve conflict without using violence. Mm-hmm. How long uh, did you do that for? I did that for two years and a half. Okay. Yeah. And I also taught at the university. I introduced, I mean, as an adjunct, I taught at the University of Tirana. I introduced courses like conflict resolution there. I was doing a lot at that, that period. I was also doing a lot of international work and consulting uh, with different organizations, partly because the Peace Education Project was international. So I enjoyed then kind of uh, both uh, traveling to Middle East, Northern Africa, Latin America, in addition to frequently coming back to the U.S., and uh, and presenting, for example, at the United Nations mm. in New York and its other headquarters in Geneva. So after doing that for several years, I also noticed that I really enjoyed teaching at the university. Mm-hmm. So that's when I thought, okay, I should try to do a PhD. At that time, I had met and got engaged to my partner, Meg Gardenier, and she also was interested in going back for the PhD. So we decided to apply Where'd you guys uh, meet? We met in New York uh, okay. and, and Boston, yeah, at a peace education workshop. So That's a little bit of divine intervention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, and so we came back. So I, I actually officially came to the United States in 2005. And I, because I was, at, by that time, we were married. So I, you know, while the first time I went, I came to the U.S. to Notre Dame, I was a, on an international student visa. Now I was on an immigrant visa. I was in, uh, and so you came back to Notre Dame to continue your PhD? Actually, no, this was to, I went to upstate New York. I went to Cornell to do my PhD. I see. And mm-hmm. after your PhD? And then after my, I mean, during my PhD, actually, I, I uh, also went back to uh, the Balkans and did some research on Kosovo and how they were rebuilding the country. That became my dissertation and my first book. 
after my PhD, while traveling back and forth in the region, I actually uh, first went to, uh, to do some postdoc in Washington, D.C. and a think tank, another postdoc, short one at Notre Dame. And then I taught in Miami for several years and then uh, to Indiana. So I actually got a lot to know a lot about American subcultures as well, which is very fascinating because, as you said, Midwest is different from Southern Florida. It's different from New England, upstate New York. Mm. Uh, and by, by that time, I had become a U.S. citizen as well. So, I mean, and that allowed, I mean, the privilege of uh, the U.S. citizenship was huge because... Opens a lot of doors. It opens a lot of doors. It allows you, I mean, in terms of travel, 145 countries. Well, mm-hmm. right now we're in the middle of COVID, so it's much less. <laughs> but in normal times, it's all, it always amuses me how I'm the same person. When I would show my Albanian passport in a lot of places, they would just keep me and ask me a lot of questions, have to get a visa, and it was a lot. And now... I just flashed the American passport and people are just like, welcome. So it's, it's, it's been a huge privilege mm-hmm. in many ways, but a p- privilege I don't take lightly. And I, I talk to people about it. So you've, you've lived in parts of Europe, you've traveled different parts of the U.S. and been all over the world. And now you're in North Manchester, Indiana, <laughs> which is for our listeners out there who are not familiar with Indiana, it's even smaller than Fort Wayne. <laughs> it's a tiny community. So what what brings you to Indiana and, and have you settled in North Manchester and what are you doing there now? Yeah, so Ma- North Manchester has had 6,000 6, inhabitants for the past 30 years. <laughs> it's, it's the same. Uh, so, but it's got, it's the site of the undergraduate program uh, for peace studies at Manchester University, which is the oldest undergraduate program and, and any program of peace studies. In the United States. In the United States. Yeah. And we, we think globally as well. When this was created in, in 1948, I don't think there was any other program that had it, hmm. that, you know, in the world. So here I came here as, as an endowed chair in peace studies where I work with students and teach various peace studies classes from, I teach a class on migrants and refugees among one of them. That's, that's a class I've created and I'm it's any juniors and seniors can take it from the university. But I teach the introduction class. I teach a mediation class, uh, global classes on conflict resolution, how international organizations, you know, help build peace. So a, a range from interpersonal, how to deal with interpersonal conflict to global global conflict. So that's, yeah, that's that's where we are. And it is, it's very comfortable. It's a small community. I can bike almost anywhere. I, I don't enjoy driving much uh-huh. I still and uh, but I enjoy I really enjoy walking and biking and seeing places and it's very easy to uh, talk to people and normally normal times I, I go to several conferences every year mm-hmm. so I still get the chance to be in the big city and uh, you know eat more diverse food and, <laughs> and, and, and meet a lot more people. I see. And uh, you mentioned Meg, who unfortunately is not unable to join us uh, this evening. We would have loved to uh, to ask her a few questions and you know interview her. But uh, you and Meg met in New York, um, been married for about 15 years now, have two beautiful children. And I'm, and I'm wondering, she's, she's from the United States, right? Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. 
New Jersey, New York area. New Jersey, New York area. Not not a, not a lot of smiling people either. So probably felt a little more comfortable for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm I'm wondering about the merging of the two cultures in the marriage between the culture that you grew up with in her American culture, did that create opportunities for growth, uh, opportunities for conflict, discussions? How did you guys bridge those two? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, as you know, when there are intercultural marriages and partnerships, there has to be a lot of communications and patience to kind of learn about each other's culture. I was lucky because Meg spent several years uh, in, in Albania. She was a Fulbright scholar and taught for a year there too. So she learned to speak some Albanian. She has a lot of friends. She knows my family very well. So she understands the Albanian culture as well. And of course, I'm, I'm always curious, so I, you know, it's not simply that you have to learn the language, but you have to kind of understand the subtle ways our cultural interactions occur. Mm -hmm. So I always try to walk a very fine path between coming to a new place, fitting in, but at the same time retaining some of my ideas and interests. So, and you have to be able to communicate about that as well. How is so, that I mean, playing out with the children now? I mean, are there, because obviously they're born and raised in, in the U.S., um, are there parts of your culture that you wish they have or you're trying to impart to them? You know? Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, they, in many ways, they, they, they joke with me sometimes that uh, I, I pronounce certain names, etc. <laughs> whenever I say a name of a country, they're like, that's not how we say it in English, Dad. And I'm just like, but that's how it's, they say it over there. I, uh, but I think they're... Yeah, I think my father is kind of sometimes wishes that my kids would, would speak Albanian. Mm -hmm. My oldest son, because he spent a year uh, in Kosovo, actually understands some. And they, they understand to, I mean, some words, etc. But they are not able to sustain a conversation. Mm -hmm. And actually what I've been pushing for them is to learn Spanish or French because these are languages that are more global and have bigger reach. But I mean, they, they know that uh, they have a strong appreciation for diversity because they know that their dad is from somewhere else. They see how they talk to their cousin in Albania and they see kind of they're, they're somewhat different. They have, they have visited uh, the country. They know about all the different foods. I always make variations of like today I made our village salad, which is what in Greece they would call the Greek salad. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so, etc. So they know they, it's like through food, through language, uh, music, they know a lot mm. about different types of music. We, uh, uh, so, in many ways, they are exposed to all this different culture, so they're more aware. But at the same time, they do tell me that, you know, as, as I would tell my son, it's like, I wish you'd finish the food. And he's like, Dad, we're not in Albania here. We're in America. I don't have to finish it. So, and I think that's that's where a little bit of our cultural values kind of, you know, when, when we grew up in Albania, especially in the early years where good food was hard to come by, mm -hmm. you'd better finish yeah, the finish food. Everything. So that was at a premium. So that was a cultural lesson that, that I, I learned that, my kids, yeah, don't have to learn. There's actually plenty of food here. And I, and, and frankly speaking, I don't want to eat them to eat everything. Sometimes it's not that great. We overcompensate sometimes, huh? <clears throat> so with all your, your, your travels and now establishing a life here, and, you know, you, you were almost, you were an immigrant, first, first of all, in Bulgaria for a little while while you were studying, then immigrant in the U.S. and, you know, lived in different places for periods of time. 
I mean, as exciting and interesting as that is, I, I can assume it's exhausting at the same time. And what kept you going during all of that? From from an emotional perspective, I, I understand the intellectual curiosity. I understand that you want to better yourself. But when you're sitting with yourself at the end of the day, after a tired day, or not doing too well on an exam, or whatever heartbreak that you went through, you just sit back and you're like, I wish I was in my parents' house right now. And, you know, how much of that still is in the back of your mind and how much of that did you deal with and and how did you handle it? How did you live through it? Right. And, yeah, I mean, there is a sense of loss that we often feel. And, I mean, uh, I've heard in in the previous podcast, I mean, other people share the same. I mean, we we do miss, just like many others, I I do miss sometimes speaking in Albanian, even though I, I talk to my family or friends. Mm-hmm. I, I miss the jokes. I notice that once if I come, if I go back when I, I usually uh, spend at least several weeks back home within the first two days, I gesticulate more. I move my hands a lot more. <laughs> uh-huh. My voice kind of my children and my wife tell me my voice gets a little bit louder. My pitch because you're kind of more energized. You're you're just like with Italians. When you hear Albanians talking, you might think that they're having a quarrel. They're just <laughs> very excited about kind of a conversation. Uh-huh. And then they finish and then they hug each other, but very tactile people. So I mean, and that's also one thing that I kind of, I miss in the sense, we don't have the same physical distance kind of, you know, uh, the personal from each other. bubble you, here, personal bubble, etc. It's much less in the Mediterranean. So you just go and you talk, you, you're, you're engaged, you, you, uh, it, it's, it's actually a lot more acceptable to be emotional and express your emotions. Mm-hmm. And I miss when I go there, I kind of, you know, I join a party and you start dancing. It's, again, more, a lot more acceptable than it is here. I still dance here, too. <laughs> my, Especially my in kids, front of your children, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I, see, this is one thing. My kids, they're both boys. They love dancing. Uh-huh. They love to express themselves. And I've made sure that they, they are able to express themselves emotionally, etc., in a wider range that sometimes cultural says it's, it's acceptable. But I think it's important because I think it's, uh, we need to be able to do that. So I, there is things that I miss and also that sense of interdependence, like, you know, mm-hmm. you rely on each other, you help each other, etc., I think in the U.S. we have a more idea of we're all individuals, we're all islands. A little more individualistic society, yeah. Yeah, I know. And and COVID, for example, is showing the, the limitations of this period. I mean, we are very interdependent. The very air I breathe so. is the air you breathe. Very much so, yeah. Yeah, and so I think there is a there is that sense that I miss. On the other hand, being bicultural means that if I'm there after two weeks, I miss my American culture as well. <laughs> Because sometimes it's too much to be interdependent. Like, I don't want to be interrupted all the time by a cousin or this and that saying, drop everything you're doing and come and have a coffee with me. Uh The first day or two, I think it's great. I say, wow, I want to catch up. I want to hear everything about what happened to the family. But by day 14, I think I'll get pretty tired and I actually want my American bubble where I can just do some focused work. My, my, my wife always, whenever I say, you know, I just, I just want to go back where I grew up. I want to go back home. I want to live. And she's like, just that's fine. Let's go. Cause she, she's like, you'll only last a week. <laughs> like, after, after about a week, you're going to want your, your, your own time. You want your own life, which is, 
It's true. I mean, it's, uh, I don't know if this is an appropriate term, but I, I dubbed it cultural purgatory <laughs> in uh -huh. a way where you're living between two cultures. I'm enjoying both of them, but at the same time, when I'm here, I'm missing certain aspects of it. And when I'm there, I'm like, okay, I can't wait to go back to where what my life is like right now. Yeah. So I can fully understand that. Yeah. Yeah. I prefer to call, I have a more optimistic view. I prefer to see uh, being bicultural means you're you're able to sample both cultures and uh -huh. pick and choose. So, I mean, I can like, you know, strategically think how to deploy my independent self in Albania, in the Mediterranean, where I make choices and then people have then to accommodate my choices in an interdependent way. Mm -hmm. Here I can choose to be more interdependent and just like say, okay, we need to work on this together. I know we're individuals, but if we do this together, we're actually going to achieve a much better result. And here is why. So I think there is, but you do have to actually do a few steps in, in the sense, looking at, at different levels and trying to understand how to do it. And then you also can pick what do you want to do? Why do you do that? Mm -hmm. I mean, even at, at, at Manchester, there's a lot of times where I look at a pattern that has been like occurring here for 20 years and I'm just like, what's the point of it? Mm -hmm. And if no one can tell me there is a point and it doesn't serve any function, then it's like, then why are we doing it? So there, there is a point where Actually, being an immigrant means that you have almost like beginning eyes. You're just mm -hmm. you're still looking at things with curiosity or trying to understand. It also means you make mistakes along the way. I mean, I, I can't count the because because I try to be reach out. I sometimes make very kind of boring mistakes. I, I you know, so Ahmed, I remember, I think uh, in Amsterdam, mm -hmm. I went to I, I went to a falafel place and I was so excited. And I said, I love Palestinian food. And the guy looked at me, it's like, this is uh, Israeli food. And I'm just like, oh, yes, it's also Israeli. But <laughs> it was a joint. Or you'd go, I would go to kind of, uh, I'd go and have a kebab in Germany. And I would say, I love Turkish food. And the guy happened to be Kurdish. Yeah. So, I mean, there's small things that happen. I mean, this is just minor stuff. But sometimes by trying to be too eager, I would make uh, mistakes. But then you learn from it, right? Mm -hmm. So you know next time that person is from that. So then I would ask about their families, what they're doing. And they're usually amused because most people don't care, right? Don't they ask. They just want their food and go. <laughs> yeah. Where is the food from? What's, what does your family eat? I'm, I'm curious. And they appreciate it. So they don't mind even, even if I made an initial mistake. I see. So with... with you know, your Albanian background, your um, American life, and in between the different different places that you've lived, how do you identify culturally? Uh, you know, if someone asks you, are you an Albanian American? Are you an American Albanian? Are you, you know, is that question easy for you to answer, hard to answer? Uh, it's not, okay, it's not that hard. And I think there is like sociological reasons for it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, this is me being a professor, but go ahead. So it's it's it. Uh, so I, I I say Albanian American, and I don't have. There's not a conflict between those two, mm -hmm. uh, and I can deploy my identities when I go back to Albania. Of course, there they know I speak the language, so I'm Albanian, and then then the local question is, but where are you? Where's your family from? So then it's like Laura, some Albanian. Identity is relation, right? But I think in the broader sense, being an Albanian American is not a contradiction the way it would be, for example, if I was an African American, where <laughs> you know, uh, where you have uh, the experience of the traumas 
both of slavery, Jim Crow, etc., means that for a lot of African-Americans, there is a double consciousness where they say, it's just like, you know, what do I pick? What do I choose? I think in many ways I'm privileged because once I came to the United States, most people did not know anything about Albania. Mm-hmm. So they assumed I was European. I was white. So I got all the privileges of being an educated white male. So there was no, there's not a lot of contradictions about it. I was given opportunities both at Cornell and other places to study and learn. I mean, within my first year at Cornell, I, uh, and, uh, and, you know, I could take on various projects and work with others and lead small teams. And it was very normal. Mm-hmm. So I actually loved, uh, loved that about kind of the new space, that kind of openness to kind of immigrant input and immigrant knowledge and immigrant talent. But I do do recognize, though, that it was it was also kind of in the wider society. I didn't face a lot of the discrimination that I would have faced mm-hmm. if if I was an African American or darker skin, or if I was after nine eleven, if I was an Arab, etc. And they could easily spot my Muslim garb. So the, I did not face any of that, which made it very easy to uh, navigate. The different cultures. Uh, and so I, I became comfortable then in kind of, okay, focusing, okay, what's, what are, I mean, I look at it partly just like when you learn a language, it's just like, once you are in a culture, you have to learn the kind of the game of how the culture plays mm-hmm. in, in a way. It's just like, what are, what's the proper way to behave in a particular setting? I mean, I, I mentioned smiling, which is small, but it is kind of, you know, Etc. You know how far? I mean, what's what's your bubble? Physical bubble, like small things. Mm-hmm. But then you can talk about you know, well, how what's acceptable in terms of being punctual? In my hometown, it's very acceptable to be 15 minutes late. If people have are meeting others, it's like relationship is more important than being on time. Like a calf, a coffee talk can last longer. This would would be a problem, for example, if I if I would do that at my work. It would yep. not. It would sound unprofessional, right? But if I am in Albania, I shouldn't take it personally if that person is not coming on time mm-hmm. because and if they tell me, well, I, I met this one and I had to do this and that. So you have to kind of know the kind of the, the register of the rules, the norms and the and the, the social cues of the culture yeah. in which you, you live. Now, <clears throat> um, I appreciate you highlighting your understanding of the privilege that you have as a as a white European male um, and how that experience might be different than someone coming from, uh, you know, an African nation uh, or from the Middle East or what have you. And uh, yeah, I mean, I asked the question, I, I was asking the question mainly to understand personally how you, whether you struggle with the identification, but because, you know, f- for me, Sometimes it's like, okay, am, am I Arab? Am I American? I, I like the term American because it's more inclusive. It's, you know, more comprehensive, but I'm proud of my Arab culture. But I do understand the connotations that saying Muslim American or Arab American, that how that might be perceived by certain others who, you know, want to pigeonhole me or paint me in a, in a particular way. Uh, and a lot of times it, it can be even taken as as uh, being less patriotic. Oh, why aren't you American? Why aren't you? Why are you an Arab American? You right, know? right, right, right. Uh, and sometimes you know the 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 hyphenated American discussion. Uh, and I, and I 
leave the uh, the decision making to the person from the culture and how they want to identify. But you know, in in certain conversations, being a hyphenated American connotes not being full American, and that puts you in, in a particular paints you in a particular way. Uh, but in others, you know, when you're hyphenated American, it's highlighting my, my cultural background and what I bring to the table and, and so on and so forth. But I really appreciated uh, your discussion because that actually leads us to a, a, a question that I wanted to ask you, which is with your realization of the, the privilege that you have and with your background in peace studies and understanding conflict and conflict resolution. How much of what you're seeing uh, with regards to Black Lives Matter and the social reckoning that we're seeing right now with how African Americans or Black Americans have been and continue to be treated in, in the United States? And as we mentioned earlier in this in the discussion, sometimes as an immigrant, you have a fresh set of eyes and, and you can view things differently. So I'm wondering, the combination of all that you are, uh, background, education, and, and all of that, uh, and in particular the conflict resolution and, and peace studies, where do you see us in the United States with regards to that? And, and you know, any views, any, any points on that that you'd like to share? Mm-hmm. So I think the experience of discriminated minorities uh, with ascribed aden- identities uh, I mean, first, I, I see it in a global context in which there is a lot of oppressed minority, oppressed peoples who, who do not have full rights or experience discrimination in terms of health, education and other forms. I mean, I have several of my academic pieces that focus on religious minorities in Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. where I look at just the experience of being, for example, an Albanian minority in Serbia and and uh, North Macedonia means that you have less access to education, health, and are forced to jump a lot more hoops than if you are the same Albanian, but where you are in Kosovo, where you are a majority, right? So I think that I've always been aware of of that period, of that that difference. But I think the U.S. has to do, uh, we, we have to do a lot of reckoning about it because I think our view, we have a particular cultural view of individualism that says that my success is a product of my hard work. Mm-hmm. So if I'm not successful, that means I'm, I'm, I'm lazy, I'm not doing, doing enough, etc. And I think that's, uh, if you come from most Kind of, you know, is any any Eastern European would laugh at that idea because we 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 grew up seeing how systems actually deprive people of mm. ways to succeed. So we we don't believe that, and I think uh, in many ways it's, it's a false belief that actually hides deeper truth. For example, that it's easier for people to achieve the American dream if they would be in Canada or a lot of European countries than if they are in the United States. And by American dream in this situation, I talk about people from the poorest um, 20% 20 of the population to become become economically mobile. It's very hard in this country, kind of, you know, because we the way we structure our education, our health, etc. We so I think it's it's a bigger issue, and I think we need to deal with inequality in general. But I also think that uh, we we need to be aware of you know the systematic deprivations that African Americans have had to deal over time. And I mean, and not just that, Native Americans. I mean, I'm a new American, but I do feel that we owe. I mean, our our home is built on land that used to be land of the Miami people, etc. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm not I'm not fully comfortable that they kind of many of them are in reservations and they have a lower quality of life than uh, many of us do. So I think that that's definitely a conversation that needs to happen. But also at policy, it's not simply about learning about it, but we need to change policy. And I think here the U.S. has the chance to just show show the rest of the world the importance of like how diversity actually strengthens us. I think kind of I'm a big believer than like you know bringing. I mean, and we've seen the the data on this. Creating more diverse teams with diverse perspectives makes the teams better. They come up with uh, better ideas, better products. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I actually, I, I don't view, I don't view kind of the idea of like sharing. I don't, I don't see our economy or our, our society as a fixed pie. I see it as an expanding pie. Mm-hmm. The more ingredients we put in, the kind of the more we can expand and just learn to appreciate each other. Otherwise, it'd be kind of boring. Yeah, I have low tellers. I have low tolerance for boredom, so I want to kind of learn more about other peoples, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in terms of our our time here, I mean, what we've seen in other parts of the world that when a group of people believe that and in the, uh, their cultural capital or their their you know they're not they've been privileged for so long and now they're afraid that they're less privileged, so there is a lot more fear of loss of stat status and resentment. Mm-hmm. So. We have to, I mean, and that, that's a dangerous period. I mean, I, you know, uh, Yugoslavia broke up like that. You know, you can see a lot of status issues and resentment that are at operation in kind of violent conflicts in the Middle East, North, Northern Africa, mm-hmm. too. So I don't want to see that. And I hope we don't, I don't, I don't think we will see that in the United States, but it requires a lot of work, a lot of communication, a lot of reaching out, don't assuming that the other side is an enemy, uh, just kind of listen to the needs, et cetera. And also convincing that the other, the other side, that you're not, you're not danger. I mean, the past, again, talking about identity, uh, how we express our identity. I think in my early years as an American, I just said, I'm an American. And if I was in a diverse city and people were curious about my accent, I'd be like, yeah, I'm an Albanian American. Mm-hmm. And that could explain something. But I didn't bother. It's only in the past few years that I've, you know, I've come out as an immigrant because I would be in conversation with people, would say something wrong about something that I like a microaggression toward immigrants, and I would say, "Hey, I noticed you meant this as this. You know, you know this this would this sounds like it could be a, a slight to other people." And I would say, "Are you aware that I'm also an immigrant? I came here less than 15 years ago, etc." And you, I mean, you're taking a class with me. You're actually. Or, or you're you're learning something from me, or we're doing something together. It's not so. Then, kind of, this allows for the other side to then be like, okay, and I'm not fine with well, but you're a good immigrant because I, you know, I really <laughs> like that. And that really. that that unfortunately is something that we want the good immigrants, not the bad immigrants. And then the classification is not even it's not even objective or something that you can measure. It's more of like people from this part are good people from that yeah. part are not as good and, and it's that over generalization that you know dehumanizes uh, the, the the label and and again it's the the premise of this entire podcast is humanizing the label understanding that there's a lot more to the person that you label as an immigrant uh, and a lot more to the person in, in general obviously but when we throw the label immigrant and even in the course of our conversation in this episode we see that there even stratifications of immigrants from 
Eastern Europe or immigrants from Europe, immigrants from the Middle East, and how each group is treated. Even within that label of immigrant, there's differences in privilege, there's differences in, in uh, perspective, view, uh, etc., and unfortunately, it, it got even more highlighted in the past few years, and we seem to be headed in a in a in a dangerous path of further isolating each from each other and further, you know, living within our echo chamber. And we're trying to to break that, to not have that uh, be the norm of conversation. So we don't want people to shy away from asking us about where we're from, uh, and at the same time, we don't want to feel that I can't express who I am and where I'm from fully and and with that i want to ask you kind of our closing thoughts you have the mic you have everyone who's listening Uh, what would you like to share or say about all that we've discussed about you as an immigrant and so on and so forth how can we better have these conversations Uh, thank you so what i would want to share is that kind of just i'd make a pitch for curiosity just like we're having a conversation right now and you're kind of curious about the other person it's just be curious i mean we shouldn't assume uh, about immigrant experience we all many of us has there's a varied immigrant experience that is not monolithic as, as i mentioned but the same person could be at times a refugee or an economic migrant or just someone who uh, was doing something else so I would say, uh, yeah, just being curious and learning more about each other. I think it's a very good conversation starter. And without assuming, without judging and, and saying, OK, but you guys are like this or generalizing. I think a lot of my amazing conversation has have been where we're just relaxed over food and drinks and just learning, learning more uh, about each other's backgrounds and ideas. And I think that's a good that's a good start. You know, to get further, I think we need to be able to be, be very intentional about welcoming diverse people. It's not enough to just tolerate and just say, oh, <laughs> you are from this and you're from this and you stay there and I stay here. But it's actually just kind of partaking in some of, you know, cultural practice, sharing food, sharing ideas. How do you do that? I'm always curious, for example, about music. You know, mm-hmm. Whenever I meet new people, I'm just like, tell me more. What kind of music do you listen to? What's the what what are, what's the dance like etc but i think i'm always so impressed that people you know love sharing about their their background and i've learned a lot for example in every part of the us where i've been by just by asking question about well how do you see this thing because i also want to be able to understand the cultural cues that a lot of people who grew up in that culture actually assume they're the right one the true one the one that everybody should have etc I don't have that, you know, that assumption, but I'm curious to learn about it. So I ask. So I think that kind of so both being curious and learning about others and then being very intentional about actually welcoming the diverse ideas, et cetera. And, and uh, I think that that would go a long way of actually making making our communities a lot more cohesive because it would not be would not be in our own silos and in our own bubble, etc. would be would be actually kind of enjoying a, a richer, broader life where we'd learn more about the world. Uh, and also and that would actually also create better communication, less less fear, less resentment. It would make it easier for us to engage in solving major problems. It doesn't have to be kind of, you know, not just simply conflict, but there's bigger problems that are now transnational. In order to solve climate change, we have to work 
across, you know, with different people from around the world. And, mm-hmm. You know, just to work on a, a pandemic, we have to kind of, you know, uh, work across cultures, across territories, etc. So, and that can only be done if we're open to that. Uh, so it all boils down to curiosity and conversation. The I and Immigrant is a production of WBOI Studios in Fort Wayne and was created and hosted by Ahmed Abdelmajid. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and please leave a review. To learn more about this season's guests, visit theiandimmigrant.com or find us on Facebook and join the conversation. Today's episode was edited by Diamond Thomas. This is co-producer Katie Anderson signing off until next time. Thanks for listening. From WBOI Fort Wayne. Bye.